0: V.C.Y. America presents Crosstalk, a nationwide call-in program discussing issues that have an effect on our families, our communities, our churches, our nation, and our world. Crosstalk, an opportunity for you to voice your concerns for biblical principles. And now live by satellite and around the world on the internet at vcyamerica.org. Here is today's Crosstalk.
1: Friends, thank you for joining us on Crosstalk here on V.C.Y. America. Have you ever noticed how we have moved from crisis to crisis. Oh, as I mean, you saw what happened unfolded with COVID. And then, of course, we got this global warming crisis, global climate change. We have this crisis and that crisis. And we're being warned about new and new variants and and, uh, many things that are unfolding. But every time we do see one of these crises. There are dictatorial-like powers that present themselves with a promise, a promise from the government that this is good for your protection. This is good for your safety. This is good for our nation. Many of us will not forget the words from Rahm Emanuel, the former mayor of Chicago, the former chief of staff to President Barack Obama, who said, you never let a serious crisis go to waste. And what I mean by that. It's an opportunity to do things that you think you could not do before. Isn't that interesting? Well, friends, we're seeing these matters grow in their intensity across our land. These are indeed false flags that are being raised. But our, as our guest points out today in his book on socialism, he exposes how the deep state capitalizes on crises to consolidate control. Back with us, William J. Federer. You heard him yes, uh, yesterday on Crosstalk, nationally known speaker, historian, author, president of AmeriSearch, author of numerous books, and we're, we're focusing in on some chapters from his book on socialism, the real history from Plato to present, and uh, the subtitle, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. Taking advantage with uh, Bill being in town here for a couple days. Bill, thanks for joining us today. Jim, great to be with you. Uh, so, Bill, you address the issue of false flags in your book, Social. Uh, where does this concept
2: of false flags originate? Well, it's interesting. The idea is you uh, create a crisis and blame the crisis on your opponent. Uh, it's called psychological projection. Sigmund Freud coined the term, where rude people call everyone they don't like rude. And so little kids do it. I didn't start the fight, you did. Or a cheating spouse will accuse the faithful spouse of being unfaithful. And it's in the Bible. You have Potiphar, Potiphar's wife, lusting after Joseph. And what does she do? She accuses Joseph of lusting after her and trying mm-hmm. to rape her. It's, so this idea of... I've heard politicians use it, I will not tolerate intolerance. <laughs> yeah. And, and so it's gotten into politics. Um, David Axelrod was the campaign manager for a previous president. And he said, in Chicago politics, we have a tradition. Throw a brick through your own campaign office window mm. and then call a press conference to accuse your opponent of doing it, right? They got to go on the defensive and they get smeared with the accusation in the media. But this concept has been developed where it's not just accusing them. It's actually committing a crisis and blaming it on them. And so this is where we step up to things a little bit more serious. And one of the uh, incidences of this is in 1788, the, king of Sweden, wanted to declare war on uh, the king of of Russia. Again, the year is 1788, and his Swedish parliament would not approve it. And so he has an idea. Uh, The idea is that he would have Swedish soldiers dress up as Russian soldiers and then attack a Swedish outpost at Pumala. And uh, when the attack happens, the media picks it up and says the Russians had attacked and it sweeps the country into a panic. And then the Swedish parliament uh, quickly approves uh, funding so that the, um, uh, the Swedes can go to war with Russia. But uh, this idea of he wanted to create a real live uh, incident that he could blame on his opponents. You know, I find this very
1: interesting because even as you, in your book, in Chapter 60, deal with false flags, you talk about that common, it was a pirate tactic that was actually utilized uh, to
2: explain that to us. Yeah. So false flags, you would have a ship sailing through the Caribbean and you'd see a ship with a flag of a friendly country or maybe a flag of showing distress. And so the naive ship would get closer and closer to it until it got too close. And all of a sudden they would say, hey, wait a second. And they would take down the friendly flag and put up a pirate flag. And then they would attack. And the people on the friendly ship would be, like, thrown into this panic. And when they were boarded with these pirates with daggers in their teeth and pistols in their hands and, you know, Blackbeard would actually take fuses for cannons. And he would light the fuses on fire and stick them in his big, bushy black hair because he had this mob of hair. And he was, like, seven feet tall. He was, like, this enormous. And, um, And so the people would panic in fear and submit. And then, of course, the pirates would rob them all. And um, so it's called a false flag where you stage an event to catch your opponent, sort of a shock and awe, where they immediately panic and cave. And uh, another incident was the Nazis wanted to invade Poland. And the uh, world public opinion wouldn't support it. And so the Nazis had German soldiers dress up as Polish soldiers and attack a German outpost at Glivitz, um, And the media picks it up that the Polish had attacked the Germans. And the media spreads, and this allowed cover for the, the Nazis to invade Poland.
1: Bill, let me ask you a question that perhaps drives the illustration closer in our time frame to us. January 6th, were there false flags, in your opinion,
2: that were raised there? Yeah, well, you're you're getting ahead, but that's exactly where this is headed. Okay, um, is that the uh, you you look prior to January 6th, you have um, over 60 cities where the Antifa, BLM, defund the police are trashing these cities with violent attacks on federal buildings, and of course the uh, the the Democrat administration does nothing. Uh, the media covers for it, um, and uh, mostly peaceful protests. Yeah. And so the word on the street is they basically paid Antifa BLM people to put on Trump T-shirts and to show up at the, the rally in D.C. Um, and with the help of the FBI and the operatives amongst the crowds, plan an attack that they could blame on the Trump supporters. Hmm. And um, but, but a couple stories uh, to add to this, as far as building a precedent, is uh, Russia wanted to invade Finland in 1939. And the world public opinion wouldn't support it. So the Russians shelled a Russian town along the Finnish border. And they spread the word that the the Finns had attacked the Russians. And the uh, public opinion got stirred up. And this allowed for the the Soviets to invade Finland in what's called the Winter War in 1939. And then let's go to the other side of the world, uh, Japan was imperialistic. It was growing, and it had a little railroad on the coast of China, and they wanted to invade China. So Japan claimed that there was a railroad explosion near Mukden, and they used this as an excuse to invade China and kill over 100,000 in Nanking, China. Later, there was an international investigation, and investigators walked the entire route of the railroad. There was no explosion they made it up. Right. But there's 100,000 Chinese in Nanking that were killed. Um, another was uh, Turkey. So you had Ataturk, who was the founding father of the modern Republic of Turkey, and he was a secularist. He said that Mohammedanism is nothing more than Arab politics, and the Turks were a great people before the religion of Ar- Arabia came in. And and, um, and so he was modern. But then you had a, a leader named um, Menderes. He's in Turkey. He wants to make a caliphate and he wants to get rid of these Greek Christians that are still there in Constantinople. For those not familiar, Constantinople used to be the capital of the Christian world for a thousand years. And um, anyway, but now it's just got a small Greek Christian minority in Constantinople and they began to refer to the city as Istanbul, which means the city. Um, So Menderes, the, the 1955, the plot was to have a Turkish university student put a bomb in the Turkish consulate and in Ataturk's birthplace that was over in Greece. And the bombs never went off. But the newspapers ran with the headline emblazoned that the Greeks had bombed the Turkish consulate and uh, the home of Ataturk, where he grew up. And they whipped Istanbul into a frenzy, and they attacked this Greek Orthodox Christian neighborhood and they trash stores and businesses and churches. Over 80 ancient churches destroyed. They pull the Greek Orthodox priests out of their bed and rip off their beards. And, and, um, and sure enough, they drove out the remaining uh, Greek Orthodox population. But again, you're staging an attack against an innocent party and then blaming them for it and using an excuse to get rid of them. It happened again in Turkey with uh, Erdogan. And he had a growing anti-Erdogan movement. He's like the Menderes. He's wanting to be more fundamentalist Muslim. And uh, so he uh, gets in an airplane, flies in a circle and lands and claims there was a coup attempt against, coup attempt against him. And he pulls out a list of all of his political opponents, like 30,000 of them, and they arrest them. They have hearings. They have January 6th type stuff. They, they zip time, take them away, and they've not been hurt since. And now he doesn't have any political opposition. And then we see a similar thing in 1934. Stalin is there at the Soviet Union, and there's a growing anti-Stalinist movement that Stalin doesn't like. At the same time, Stalin has a supporter named Sergei Kirov, and Sergei Kirov is giving speeches praising Stalin. So Stalin has an idea. He will um, assassinate his friend Sergei Kirov and eliminate a potential rival and blame the assassination on the anti-stalinists nobody would suspect he did it because they were friends and everybody would believe that the anti-stalinists did it because they didn't like stalin and they didn't like sergei kirov stalin used this as an excuse to set up hearings to have questionings to detain people indefinitely and to kill over a million people in the first great purge of 1936 to 38 hmm. so right so here He's the one that does this terrible thing, blames it on these innocent people and uses it, uses it an excuse to round them up. And to have hearings and committees and everything. And they kill a million of them. And then we go to Germany. So Germany used to be a republic, the Weimar Republic. And somebody started a party called the National Socialist Workers Party or Nazi. And the head of it was Hitler. And this party had an under the table violent arm to it, sort of an Antifa BLM type. So they could appear above, above, uh, you know, reproach, but they would be funding and supporting this violent group to do the terrorism. And so they were called brown shirts, and they were nicknamed Sturmabteilung, which means stormtroopers, because they would storm into the meetings of Hitler's political opponents and disrupt the meeting. And then they would lock arms and block access to public buildings and public streets. Could you imagine people locking arms and blocking streets? And then they went into the cities and they trashed and burnt and set on fire over 7,500 stores in the night of broken glass. Could you imagine people going into the downtowns and burning and setting on fire and looting stores? And then, oh, did I mention their capital got set on fire? The burning of the Reichstag. And evidence points to Hitler's own people setting the fire. But he decided to blame his political opponents and have committee hearings and detain people and arrest people and have them shot without a trial. And when the dust settled, Hitler didn't have any political opponents left. And Germany transitioned from a um, uh, republic to a dictatorship. You know, uh, after the Mar-a-Lago raid, the Senator Marco Rubio from Florida, did an interview on Fox and he uh, said some interesting things uh, about how it's normal in other countries to do this type of behavior where you would, um, here's the quote, this is shocking rating of Trump's place. But in Latin America, many other countries, here's what happens, a group takes power. Uh, One of the first things they do is persecute, go after their political opponents. When the supporters of their political opponents complain, they begin to target and criminalize opposition. The next thing, because it is the playbook, is that people who are supporters to Donald Trump or just conservatives are going to begin to be labeled as potential insurrectionists and harassed by law enforcement.
1: Bill Federer with us here today on Crosstalk, back in a minute, here on this broadcast.
2: Back to Genesis with Dr. John Morris, scientist with the Institute for Creation Research. Dr. Morris, what were the flying dinosaurs? Chris, the flying reptiles like the pterodactyls were not really dinosaurs. By definition, dinosaurs walked on land with bones different from the flying reptiles. But they're often in the same discussion, usually as being huge reptiles from the great age of reptiles. Of course, I disagree with the term age of reptiles. I think all animals were created during creation week flying animals on day five and land animals on day six. But, you know, there's a lot of evidence that these flying reptiles lived at the same time as humans. Sober historians of yesteryear described such beasts and even drew pictures of them. And the American Indians even drew pictures of the Thunderbird, and their drawings are similar to the Pteranodon. Make no mistake, Chris, the evidence fits the back to Genesis truth of recent creation of all things. To learn more about creation, get our free DVD called That's a Fact. Call us at 800-628-7640 and mention the promo code FACT.
1: William J. Federer, our guest, uh, back again here today on Crosstalk. And uh, we're discussing uh, false flags, uh, creating a crisis to consolidate control. Uh, By the way, that is a subtitle to his book, Socialism, which we do make available through Crosstalk. Uh, Again, uh, we're making it available our way of saying thank you for your support of $18 or more. It is available. uh, You can go to our website at vcyamerica.org. Vcyamerica.org, where you may call our switchboard at 1-800-729-9829. one 729 9829 Well, Bill, in this matter of never letting a crisis go to waste and this concept here of false flags and other issues we're going to develop today, there is a term called
2: Machiavellianism. What is that term? What does it mean? Tell us about it. Well, Machiavelli lived 500 years ago in Italy. And uh, to give a little background that helps us to understand him, Uh, the most common form of government in world history is kings. Nimrod, Pharaoh, Caesar, Kaiser, Sultans are, and they keep getting bigger and bigger until the king of England was the biggest. And America's Kassanus broke away and flipped. It made the people the king. And so we have a republic and a republic is where the people are king ruling through representatives. But what if the king wants the power back? And so you look at different examples throughout the world that, There are two tools that kings use to take the power away from the people. Fear and free stuff. And so when people are in fear, they will panic and trade freedom for security. And free stuff is the king's so nice, he's giving us free stuff until you get dependent. And then you want more, you have to incrementally give up your freedom. Sort of like a drug dealer takes over a neighborhood two ways. He can come in with guns and get people in fear and they submit to the mob. Or the drug dealer's so nice, he's giving away free drugs until you get hooked. And then you want some more free drugs, you're going to have to sell yourself into prostitution and give up control of your body. And so it's sort of a front door, back door approach, but it's the goal is usurping power from the people. And uh, it's sort of like a hunter catches animals through guns or bait, a trap. So uh, front door, back door. So the fear, how do you create an atmosphere of fear so that people will panic and give up their freedoms to the government for, who you know, promises the solution? You have to create discord. You have to make people feel unsettled and unsafe. And so how do you so get discord? Um, you know, the Bible, Psalms 133 says, how good and pleasant it is that brethren to all together in unity. But then it says, Proverbs 6, six things the Lord hates, and the last is he that soweth discord. So the name Satan in Greek is diabolos, devil, diabolos, which means to divide. And so the devil sows division in heaven, sow division in, in past. So there can only be one will in heaven for there to be unity. And it's God's will, and it's a good will, and he loves you, and he made you, and he wants you to spend eternity with you. Well, the devil had his will. And the moment there's two wills, there's war in heaven, because they're not the same will. And so those two wills are going to come into conflict. And so Satan said, I will be like the Most High. I will put my throne above the throne. He's got his own will, and it's not God, so he got two wills. And so he sowed division. And so he's cast out. He goes into the garden, and he sows division to divide. He gets Adam to blame Eve and Cain to kill Abel. And then he sows division. Um, I've mentioned it uh, previously, but Abimelech is this um, illegitimate son of Gideon. So Gideon just defeats 100,000 Midianites. There's no threat to Israel. But this Abimelech half-son wants power. So he goes to the town of Shechem and does a critical race theory, identity race politics. He tells the people there, is it better for you that all the sons of Gideon reign over you? Remember also, I'm your flesh and your bone. And the men of Shechem said, well, we got to vote for him because he is our brother. So he's identifying with him on a fleshly level. And then they go to the city treasury and they take 70 pieces of silver um, to hire protesters and rioters, vain and worthless persons to do what? To commit violence. And they kill all the half brothers. And then the men of Shechem make Abimelech king. So here you have a country completely at peace. Somebody wants power. He sows division. He sows this, this di- divide. And then in this confusion, he seizes power. And so the Hebrew Republic would have ended here rather than a century later with King Saul had not somebody threw a millstone over the wall and it killed Abimelech. Um, But now we get to Machiavelli. So 500 years ago, Italy was not Italy. It was a bunch of city states, Venice, Genoa, Naples, Florence, Siena, and they all had armies and fought. And Machiavelli thought, well, if one prince could control all of Italy, it would stop the infighting. So he writes a book called The Prince, where he advocates the ends justifies the means. The end of one prince controlling all of Italy is such a good end because it'll stop this infighting that any means necessary to get there is justified. Lie, cheat, steal. So if a prince conquers a city, the people in the city don't want to be conquered. They would hate him. But if the prince pays criminals like Abimelech did, right? You, you hire rioters, you hire anti, you, you BLM people, you hire people to create violence. And then the people of this Italian city state will cry out for help. The prince will come in and get rid of the very criminals he bribed to create the crises. Nobody will know the better for it. And everyone will praise the prince as a hero. So it's good marketing. You create the need and fill it. You go around the back of the house and set it on fire. Then you go around the front of the house and sell them a fire extinguisher mm-hmm. and they'll pay anything for it. And thank you for being there. So it's called Machiavellianism, where you create or capitalize on a crisis to consolidate control. And that's that quote you mentioned, Rahm Emanuel. You don't ever want a crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do important things you could otherwise avoid. It's an opportunity to push your agenda. Mm -hmm. So you and I see a crisis. Our response is, how can we help people through it? They see a crisis. Their response is, how can we usurp power through this crisis? And so it goes from just coincidental crises and usurping power to creating the crises. And so we have a guy named Klaus Schwab, and he wants to have a one-world government in his World Economic Forum. And there's a quote from the Impromis magazine last December on the Great Reset. It says, Klaus Schwab uh, said that if the past five centuries in Europe and America have taught us anything. It's that acute crises contribute to the boosting of the power of the state. So here we have these people wanting a global government, and they realize that it's not going to happen unless they have acute crises. And if I can throw in a couple more stories. Um, The British Empire. Uh, The British Empire became the biggest empire on planet Earth. Uh, How did they get so big? Did they just walk into a country and say, hi, uh, we uh, want to have the biggest empire on planet Earth, so give us control of your little country. Is that how it worked? Well, no. Uh, Let's look at how they took over India. So in 1714, the British land in Bengal, and they opened up a trading post that turned into a trading fort that turned into them having guns, and then they would give guns to one kingdom and guns to another kingdom, and then they would stir up discord, division, animosity between these two until they broke out into fighting and bloodshed. And when they beat each other up and weakened each other, the British would come in to restore order, and they would take control of both kingdoms. And they did this again and again and again until they took over all of India, a quarter of the world's population. And they actually tried doing this in America. So the Americans and and the Indians had reached an equilibrium and were getting along. Well, the British come into the Indians and offer them money for scalps. And so you have British General Johnny Burgoyne lands in Canada. He's coming down and he meets with the Mohawk Indians and he stirs them up to attack Americans and scalp them. And it was so bad that it's listed in our declaration as one of the reasons why we were rebelling against the king. Mm. It says the king has excited domestic insurrections among us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers. The merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes and conditions. The British tried this again during the War of 1812. So Fort Mims, Alabama. Uh, The British control Pensacola, which is just south, and the British decide to give guns and money to these Indians and promise them money for scalps. And so the Indians attack Fort Mims, Alabama, capture it, and then take the people, 500 of them, out and scalp them. And uh, this is what the historical marker there at Fort Mims, Alabama says. Here, Creek Indian War, 1813-14, took place most brutal massacre in American history. Indians took the fort then killed all but about 36 of the some 550 in the fort. Creek Indians had been armed by British at Pensacola in this phase of the War of 1812. Mm. Do we really think the British Empire cared about the Creek Indians? No. Uh, They were wanting to sow division between the Americans and the Indians so they could come in and take control of the whole thing, this division. So this was sort of done, but a guy named Hegel in Germany put it into a nice, neat equation. You know, Germans, real analytical thinking. And, and so the, uh, the guy's name is Hegel. And um, if I have a moment, I can explain him. So Napoleon conquers Europe and six million die. And after Napoleon is forced to abdicate, uh, the Europeans are putting their little kingdoms back together. And the king of Prussia said, we can't get conquered that easy again. We need to strengthen our state. And so he gets a philosopher named Hegel that says, I know how to do it. He teaches at the University of Berlin, and he calls it dialectics, Hegelian dialectic, or or Hegelian dialectic. And so it's a triangle. One corner is a thesis. The opposite corner is an anti-thesis, and the top corner is a synthesis. It sounds complicated, but it's not. The thesis is the starting point. The status quo, everybody's getting along the way they have for a long time. You have to create the antithesis. You have to create the crisis. you have to create the discord. and when there's discord and everybody panics in fear, then they're willing to surrender some of their freedoms to settle for a synthesis, an answer that's just half as bad. Then that becomes the new starting point, and you create another problem that's real bad, and everybody will settle for your answer for an answer that's half as bad. Then that's the new starting point. You sow some more discord, have another crisis, another panic. And then people will give up some more of their freedom to settle for an answer that's just half as bad. And each time they settle, they're giving up another little bit of their individual liberty and freedom to the state. So Hegel's like, okay, how can we get the state stronger? We got to get rid of the individual stuff. Well, how do you do that? You got to create crisis, create crisis. And then everybody will panic, give up a little more of their freedom to the state, which promises to fix it. And so Karl Marx, who um, was a student of Hegel's at the University of Berlin, Uh, Karl Marx says, "Okay, how do you create a problem that's real bad? You send in agitators, agent provocateurs, community organizers, labor organizers. Their job is to find people with grievances and stir them up to riot. (laughs) And he actually called it critical theory. Wow. So you would examine a country and identify all the groups economically, religiously, racially. And you would call some victims and others oppressors, haves and have nots. And then you would pit them against each other. And once they beat each other up really bad, everybody panics in fear. That's when you would usurp power. And so originally it was economic uh, groups, proletariat versus the bourgeois or the working class versus the business owners. And then it was, you know, the poor against the rich or the blacks against the whites or the Catholics against the Protestants or the Muslims against the Christians. It didn't matter, you know, uh, they even in the Congo and Rwanda, the people saw themselves as one. But the Belgian and German colonizers came in and measured them and their features and called some Hutus and others Tutsis. They even legally mandated that they identify in these groups. And then they began to stir up division between the groups, Diabolos, to divide. And then they would fight each other and they would genocide each other. And then the colonizing power would say, okay, we're going to come in and restore order and we're just going to happen to take over the whole place. Wow. And so this concept is called critical theory. And it is interesting that the founders of Black Lives Matter, uh, Patrice Cullors, did an interview, and she says, we are trained Marxists. Yes, she did. They're trained in how you break people into groups. And it's basically introducing an autoimmune disease to the body politic. What's an autoimmune disease? It's where your own immune system starts attacking your own organs. You have a war going on inside of your own body. And... um, So Castro said the revolution needs the enemy. The revolutionary needs his antithesis, which is the counter-revolutionary. And if enemies were lacking, they had to be fabricated. So you have to have an enemy that is uh, to get people into fear before people panic and fear and give up their freedoms. And if there aren't any enemies, you have to create them like a a white supremacist or a nationalist or or dominionist. You have to create some enemy that does not exist but you pretend like he exists because you need an enemy to get people scared of so that you have an excuse to take away their freedom.
1: Friends, there's an agenda behind all of this. It's just not sparking out of total innocence. Uh, There is an agenda behind this, and uh, that's why the book is subtitled How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. We'll be right back.
0: If you're like most individuals, you look forward to your vacation. Many will take great effort to consider a destination the family will enjoy, what to do, where to stay, and what highways to take to get there. Sadly, most people spend more time planning their one-week vacation than they do preparing for eternity. The Bible says our life is but a vapor. None of us has the promise of tomorrow, and our eternal destiny is sealed at death. Wouldn't it be wise to investigate these things? That's the purpose of the book, Preparing for Eternity. In this book, author Mike Gendron contrasts the truth of God's Word with the teachings and traditions he was taught for over 30 years in the Roman Catholic Church. He found that eternal life is not merited by good works, but is given freely by God's grace to those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their all-sufficient Savior. The book, Preparing for Eternity, is available for a donation of $17 or more to VCY America by calling 1-800-729-9829. 1-800-729-9829.
1: You're listening to Crosstalk on VCY America. William J. Federer is our guest today. False flags, creating a crisis to consolidate control, giving us example from Machiavelli and uh, how this is playing out, folks, not only in history past... But are you understanding the parallels? Understanding the parallels of what is unfolding before us, even here in our lifetimes. These are not just things that have happened in the past. We're seeing examples of what what the end is of these items. Yes, to consolidate control as you give up your freedoms. Uh, Bill, we were talking about this 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 whole aspect of never letting this crisis go to waste, and you talked about Diablo. So talked about the division that is taking place here. This is division that uh, shouldn't be foreign to us. Uh, we heard Abraham Lincoln address this issue. Even the Lord Jesus Christ addressed this issue.
2: Yeah, so Lincoln gave a famous speech, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he's referring to Mark 3, 24, where Jesus says, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. Again, so it's introducing an autoimmune disease into the body politic. You want to get people to stop identifying with the country, get them to identify with subgroups and pit them against each other. Mm-hmm. And so how do you destroy a marriage? So division. How do you destroy a family? So division. How do you destroy a church? So division. How do you destroy a country? So division. You know, Franklin Roosevelt, November 1st, 1940, beginning of World War II, said, whoever seeks to set one nationality against another seeks to degrade all nationalities. Whoever seeks to set one race against another seeks to enslave all races. So-called racial voting blocks are are the creation of designing politicians who profess to be able to deliver them on Election Day. And then Franklin Roosevelt said, January 2nd, 1942, Remember the Nazi technique. Pit race against race, religion against religion, prejudice against prejudice, divide and conquer. Wow. You know, almost exactly the same quote is from NBA player Charles Barkley on a CBS Sports panel, April 3rd, 2021. And Charles Barkley said... Man, I think most white people and black people are great people. I really believe that in my heart. But I think our system is set up where our politicians, whether they're Republicans or Democrats, are designed to make us not like each other so they can keep their grasp of money and power. They divide and conquer. Charles Barkley goes on, we're so stupid following our politicians. Their only job is, hey, let's make the whites and blacks not like each other. Let's make the rich people and the poor people not like each other. Let's scramble the middle class. I truly believe this in my heart. So this concept of dividing was brought to the present by a guy named Saul Alinsky. Hillary Clinton did her senior thesis at Wellesley College on Saul Alinsky. And uh, a previous president was a community organizer with the Saul Alinsky Group in Chicago. And Saul Alinsky said the first step in community organization is community disorganization. Disruption of the present organization is the first step. The organizer's first job is to create the issues or the problems. The organizer must first rub raw the resentments of the people of the community. An organizer must stir up dissatisfaction and discontent, fan the latent hostilities of many of the people to the point of overt expression. Again, this is Saulinsky. The organizer polarizes the issue, helps lead his forces into conflict. He must search out controversy for unless there is controversy, the people are not concerned enough to act. And this idea of going into a community and sowing discord he has an acknowledgement in the front of his book to Lucifer. Wow. Lest we forget, at least an over-the-shoulder acknowledgement of the first radical known to man who rebelled against the establishment and did it so effectively, he at least won his own kingdom, Lucifer. So we started off talking about the devil, Diablos, to divide, to separate, sowing division in heaven, sowing division with Adam, Blame and Eve, Cain, Kill and Abel, sowing division Machiavelli, the British Empire sowing all his division, Karl Marx uh, turning it into this nice, neat, triangular equation called dialectics. But this idea of sowing division it's being used on us right now.
1: It is. And, uh, friends, I hope you understand that. I mean, Bill, there's so many illustrations of that being
2: unfolded before us right now. Yeah, and the answer is the gospel. Yeah. I mean, who was treated the the worst when he was totally innocent? Jesus. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is being crucified. And what did he say? Father, forgive him. Right. And so when, if, if we're going to go to heaven, Jesus, we pray the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those. We're all treated bad. Some are treated a lot worse than others. You know, i talked to, that was my Uber driver one time was from Nigeria. And he talked about how the the Muslims from the north would come down onto a school bus, just stop a highway, just go through the bus and just kill the people if they were belonging to a Christian tribe. And people, everybody to certain degrees has experienced this uh, and some to terrible degrees. But Jesus said, okay, it's the spirit within you and the spirit of Christ is Father, forgive them. And so the answer is to not get caught up into this grievance uh, of wanting to be a part of, um, you know, it's one thing having a healing taking place, but it's another thing being a pawn Mm -hmm. of a globalist political power that wants to stir up crises because their goal is in the confusion they can seize power. Bill Federer, our guest here today on
1: Crosstalk, and uh, let me just mention his book again, Socialism. The history from Plato to the present: How the deep state capitalizes on crises to consolidate control. It is available for donation of eighteen dollars or more to Crosstalk. Available on our website, vcyamerica.org, dot org, dot org, or by calling one eight hundred seven two nine. Nine eight two nine. For the sake of time, we're going to develop one other concept that's really connected to all of this, and it's the concept of gaslighting. And you address the topic of gaslighting in your book. Now, those of you who are regular listeners to Crosstalk, you know, just a couple of years ago, I interviewed Pastor David Brown on this topic of gaslighting. We spent a full program on this topic, uh, but there's been two years has been passed by since that time. So uh, for those that are not familiar, Bill, with this term of gaslighting, define that for us and... Maybe some examples in how this is being
2: carried out. So, in 1944 movie Gaslight starring Ingrid Bergman. And in the movie, she's the niece of a famous actress who was murdered in an attempt um, to get her jewels. Now, uh, she dies, and this Ingrid Bergman actress inherits the, the famous actress's house, but all of her actress stuff is locked in the attic. The well, the murderer decides to change his identity and begins a a whirlwind courtship of Ingrid Bergman. And she's this naive young girl and she ends up falling for him, and they get married. And then he would like put her to sleep, you know, in the old 1944 black and white movies, put her to sleep in, in her bedroom and he would go for a walk to smoke his pipe. And, um, He would go down the street and it's like in London where the houses are all like together, like Mary Poppins, you know, they go from roof to roof. He would climb up a fire escape, go along the roofs and then climb in the window in the attic and go in there and turn the gas lamp on in the attic and hunt around looking for these jewels. And what, but whenever he turned the gas lamp on in the attic, the gas lamp in Ingrid Bergman's bedroom would get dimmer. And so when he'd come back, she'd say, you know, whenever you go for the walk, uh, the, the light in my bedroom gets dimmer. And he goes, oh, your eyes are playing tricks on you. Hmm. Uh, you're seeing things. I-, I think the stress of your aunt dying, I think it's, the stress is getting to you. I think you may be losing it. I think you may be going crazy. And, and this movie goes on until he's ready to commit her to an insane asylum. And she's going to go along with it because she's gaslighted. She, she believes she's crazy mm-hmm. until finally the, the hero, you know, across the street sees the lamp go on in the attic and get dimmer in the bedroom. And he breaks the story and they arrest the guy. Um, but it's, it's gone into our vernacular. That this term of gaslighting people and, um, you know, it's even a psychological thing. Psychology Today wrote this uh, gaslighting victims of gaslighting are systematically fed false information that leads them to question what they know to be true. They end up doubting their memory, their perception, even their sanity. And so this is what an abusive spouse will do and so forth. But it's all done to us as a nation. They control majority of the media and they can begin to put their storyline. And so this was 1944. So over in Germany, you have Joseph Goebbels and um, an interesting train of thought. So um, marketing of products. Uh, It went from Sears catalogs in the 1800s listing everything about a sewing machine to early 1900s where they would have magazine ads, and a guy named Edward Bernays um, basically discovered that people will buy stuff without knowing anything about it. You
1: talked about that yesterday. It looks like everybody's using Mm -hmm. it.
2: And so, so his concept was then adopted by Joseph Goebbels in Germany and he would put together these Coliseum events with 100,000 people, and they'd begin to give the Nazi salute at the front, and everybody would see everybody else giving it, and because they all want to fit in with the group, they'd be pressured to give it, and then people would see you giving it, they would feel pressured till everybody's... And this manipulation of this group consensus, Joseph Goebbels says, it is the absolute right of the state to supervise the formation of public opinion. Think of the press as a great keyboard on which the government can play. And... Um, Lord Acton once said, official truth is not actual truth. And and so this idea uh, began to spread. One of the people that was a pioneer in it um, was Carl uh, von Clausewitz, and he was a 19th century military theorist, and he gave the classic purpose of war, and it's to force your opponent to submit your will. And so you're killing your opponent's bodies in battle. Why? Because their mind is loyal to the other side. Well, I have a question, uh, why don't you just mess with your your enemy's mind and then you don't have to kill their body? So you get them to be disloyal or get them to be confused or get them into fear and demoralized. And so this came up with a whole thing called psychological warfare. And it, it goes back. One of the initial persons that mentioned this was Sun Tzu's Art of War in China, 5th century B.C., and he's giving all these war tactics. You know, you always want the high ground and not the low ground. And, mm-hmm. But he said, supreme excellence in a commander is where you can get your enemy to surrender without a fight. You mess with their mind so much, you make it, them think you're more powerful than you are. But it's called, now it's called fifth generation warfare, where you get your enemy to surrender without them even being aware that they're in a war.
1: Bill, we're going to have to leave it there due to time. And, friends, you can get more information from his book on socialism and other of his writings, too. Let me just give out our phone number. It's 800-733-9829. If you have a brief question you would like to ask or or a brief comment, question or brief comment, 800-733-9829. We're two and a quarter minutes before the break, Bill. Got a question for you. We've talked about false flags, psychological projection, Machiavellianism. Uh, We've talked about the gaslighting uh, here on the program today. Your subtitle is dealing on, on how the deep state capitalizes in crises to consolidate control. How is this all connected to the deep state?
2: Right. So they realize that for us to give up our freedoms, there has to be crises. And they have to have somebody to blame the crises on because they don't want to blame it on themselves. And so you see that if they can plan something or take advantage of a crisis that just happens there, but they can use it as an excuse to usurp power, uh, then they can transition us from a bottom-up form of government to a top-down form of government. And you believe that's going on right now? Yes. Hmm. And it's not just national, it's global. And it's called the Great Reset. And you can read their writings and, you know, these globalists meet together, the Bilderbergs, the Davos, and so forth. And they talk about, okay, how do we consolidate power? Uh, How do we get people to go to a Digital currency that the government controls. Well, we got to collapse all the currencies. Well, how do you collapse a currency? You you print trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars until the dollars buy less, and and then uh, the people say government help, and the government says we'll help. Here's a digital currency, and we'll keep the the economic machine going, but we'll be able to track everybody, and we'll be able to turn off your currency if you're not woke enough. They call it ESG, environmentally friendly, socially woke, and governance, and and so everything that accesses the internet has a little code your phone, your your laptop, and they keep track 24 hours a day of everything that you access. They know how many seconds you are viewing each web page. And with the GPS of your phones, they know where you're traveling. Mm-hmm. And they can see if you're around other people. You know, that's the whole mule thing because they were able to find the pings of the phone and find out where these phones are going. And um, the 2000 mules uh, exp- exposition that, that Dinesh D'Souza did. But they're collecting all this information and, and it's available and people purchase it. But now the government has it and they run these algorithms where they can predict. Uh, they want to predict what you're going to do next and they want to get inside your head and they want to see are you believing their globalist stuff or. Do they need a couple more crises to get you to panic?
1: And, folks, this is uh, Klaus Schwab talking about there is no going back to normal uh, in all of this. Uh, Noah uh, Harari, uh, too, talking about we've had surveillance outside of the skin. Now we need to have surveillance under the skin as well. Back in just one minute, our number to crosstalk, 800-733-9829. We'll be right back.
3: For the Worldview Report, I'm Brandon House. Our website is worldviewreport.com. This past weekend, we held our 19th annual Ozarks Worldview Weekend. We were filled to capacity. We were talking about the issues such as Bible prophecy. We were talking about the issues of what's happening in our world in relation to COVID, the COVID shot. And we were talking about economic issues as well. Why do I mention this to you today in my commentary? To show you that there are still people that are interested in understanding the times and knowing how God would have them to respond god said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church the church is a group of believers ecclesia called out ones, and we have believers that are today actively seeking to understand the times and know how god would have them respond some people drove for three days to be there they came from all parts of the country as far away as california new york the new england states all the way to lake of the ozarks to study the bible and understand the times be encouraged
1: This is Crosstalk on VCY America. William J. Federer, our guest here today as we complete this two-day series with him. And uh, thank you for tuning in. Let's go to the phone lines. Our number 800-733-9829. Let's begin with Joe, who is calling in from Laval, Wisconsin. Hi, Joe. You're on the air.
4: Wow. Howard Zinn used to be my favorite historian, but Bill Federer is my new favorite. So I just want to put that out there. Now, I remember 25 years ago when I was in a uh, Catholic grade school, and my home room teacher, Mr. Quinn, did this experiment that is very reminiscent of uh, the division of the Hutus and the Tutsis. What he did is Mr. Quinn divided us into Group A, those who had brown eyes, and Group B, those who were not brown eyes. And I was in Group B. And Group A got three bowls of rice to eat for that day, and Group B only got one bowl. And by the end of that half-hour lunch period, uh, Group A was acting snobbishly and superior to Group B, and by the end of the experiment, it really showed that, you know, Cooley's Looking Glass Theory, if we just treat others a certain way and we convince them and gaslight them into believing that they are inferior, then a lot of them will start to behave the way we're treating them, and it'll be a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I really thank Mr. Federer for bringing that topic to light, and that just reminded me of my homeroom teacher, Mr. Quinn's social experiment from 25 years ago. So thank you, guys, for all that you do.
1: Thank you, Joe, for your call. Interesting comment there, Bill.
2: Yeah, well, the studies on child psychology and human psychology comes down to basically one thing. People want to be accepted, and they don't want to be rejected. And so most of the world, they call it honor-shame cultures. Um, And in Islam, they call it Ummah, the community, uh, where you want to be honored. But if your daughter embarrasses you in front of your group, they'll murder their own daughter. Uh, And so you see this desire to be accepted. A, a water molecule is individual, but you put it together with other water molecules and it operates in a group and does these waves and, and hurricanes. And a fish is a fish, but you put them with, with other fishes, they operate in a group and they can all turn on a dime. A bird's in a cage, but you put it with other birds that operate in a group and they can fly in these really sweet patterns. And, and so individuals are individuals, but you put us together with a group and we're always giving and receiving feedback. Are we being accepted or rejected? Yeah. Continually, yeah. continually. Now, at the beginning of the country, the majority of the country was Christian. And so you would have non-Christians Basically, adopting Christian behavior because they wanted to fit in with the Christian group, uh, but now they control the group uh, mentality. And so, their little kids want to fit in; they want to wear the same tennis shoes and the you know the in style. But they they've now weaponized that, and they're they're weaponizing because they control the social media and so forth. Uh, we get this perception that hey, the group is supporting this and not supporting that, and we're being pressured to want to fit in. But it's something that is being manipulated. Our next caller is from Pennsylvania. Hi, Faith. You're on the air.
4: I marvel at the fact that back in the 60s when I was a teenager, J. Edgar Hoover had uh, published a tract called Girls Dress Modestly. And then more recently, when we took Japanese students just for two days or whatever, there was a little panel in which they asked the question, what about yeah, Americans' rugged individualism. Sure.
2: <laughs> hmm. You know, I I'm, I always marvel. I'm one of 11 kids, and my mom uh, would have glass bottles that she would boil on the stove with powdered milk and put the nipples on them and everything. And all the women in the country were like, think they, they bought into that it's unsanitary to nurse your child. To think that for for, for since the beginning of human history, mothers have nursed children, but they were able to successfully brainwash mothers saying, oh, no, it's unsanitary. And thankfully, we've gotten back to, to nursing. But this uh, this idea of marketing and, and manipulating, World War, uh, Korean War is an interesting story. Soldiers volunteered. They got captured. When we rescued them, they went from loving America to hating America. And they said, what happened to these guys in prison? Well, they found out that they put them in a room and isolated them. For months and months and months till they got to the breaking point of, of them just craving, 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 wanting to get back to normal, wanted to have friendships, relationships, and they would bring him into a room with a half dozen guys who had already caved. And before the the isolated guy could be accepted in the group and get the emotional support that he wants... He had to confess his whiteness. He had to confess that he was part of the evil Western capitalist American system that was doing all these atrocities around the world. Mm-hmm. And once he hated America, then he got the buddy slap on the back and he's accepted in the group. So their idea is you'd put the whole country through isolation and deprivation and, and lockdowns until they crave, 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 wanting to get back to normal and just go to shopping again. And then they say, OK, but before you do, you got to give up these freedoms.
1: Kathy, thank you for the call, by the way, Faith. And uh, Kathy in Watertown, you're on the air.
4: Hi. Um, I'm calling. This is this is kind of hard for me to explain, but today uh, I got an email from my bank, who told us by November 8th we were going to go um, digital. We're going to be going um, all so that all of our money is handled just online. We just handle it with our phones and our computers, and that's all we have is what they pass back and forth and they can keep track of what we're doing with it and who we're giving it to. And I called my bank and said, I don't like this at all. But of course, the girl that answered the phone really wasn't aware of what I was talking about. So I just thought I'd throw that in. It's already here right now.
1: Thank you for sharing that. uh, Control of our money, this is really a step, all part of the Great Reset, I mean, uh, for that control to take place.
2: Yeah. So a little lady in Canada donated $50 to that, uh, you know, trucking caravan or whatever when they had that Mm -hmm. protest, and they turned off her bank account. Yeah, Uh, China, they call it the social credit score. And so they've taken all this, you know, computer brilliance that, you know, Facebook and Microsoft and everything has, and they keep track of everybody. And if you're not loyal enough to the Communist Party, uh, you're... Your money doesn't work. That's what they want to do.
1: Thank you for the call. We're going to try and squeeze Dale in from Eau Claire. You're on the air, Dale.
4: Yes, I have a question. I've enjoyed the program. Very good. Do you think they'll create a crisis before the election?
2: Uh, They usually do. It's called an October surprise. I ran for Congress three times and learned all about how it works. And they'll they'll either save some dirt on a candidate that they'll release the week before as like some breaking news story. And then it gets everybody to, to stop supporting that candidate. Um, and But even if it's, uh, it could be total lies, but all it has to do is confuse people for a week. Um, but then they can take care, of, uh, it can be a financial crisis or a military crisis, who knows. But, uh, you know, in, in, in Athens, uh, you have... We're, we're out of time here. We're out of time. <laughs> anyway, should... I want to end with a thought. God always waits till things looks, looks hopeless, and then he raises up little nobodies with faith and courage. And whether it's a Gideon, a David, a Moses, a Joshua, this is just our turn. So don't be discouraged. God will make a way.
1: Amen. God bless you, Bill. Thank you for being with us.
2: And all this information is in the book, Socialism.
1: Thank you, Bill. William J. Federer with us here today on Crosstalk. Again, if you'd like to obtain a copy of the book, uh, check out vcyamerica.org or for information, call 800-729-9829. God bless you, folks. Thanks for joining us on
0: Crosstalk. You've been listening to Crosstalk via satellite and the Internet from VCY America